when we're talking about how can we live our best lives? How can we take care of our brain, our heart, our body? One of the things that I think is missing from this conversation is for women specifically, orgasms on the daily. Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Our next guest is Dr. Stephanie Estima. Stephanie is a board-certified doctor of chiropractic with a special interest in metabolism, body composition, hormones, and functional neurology. She's also the host of an award-winning podcast and author of an international best-selling book called The Betty Body. We are going to be talking about gut health, fasting, intermittent fasting, keto, and other fat diets that specifically affect the female body. Welcome, Stephanie. Dr. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. I just want to start off by saying that you are an absolutely beautiful, stunning woman. And now that I've even read your book, I can see that you're absolutely stunning inside as well. So, oh, thank you. I received that. And I think, you know, you had just mentioned something similar in the pre chat where we don't compliment each other enough. And I mm-hmm. think that that is such a beautiful sentiment. And thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. You're most welcome. And what I will say is uh, we're extraordinary creatures, us women girls and women. And we need to honor our inner and outer beauty, tell each other, and also understand better how we operate as women because we do extraordinary things. We do extraordinary things for the world and we do extraordinary things for ourselves. And with that said, I have just finished your book, The Betty Body. Absolutely brilliant book. I was so motivated by what I read. So I actually took your advice, but I would like to start off by hearing from you what happened to you. You were having very bad periods and you took a trip to Italy and you did the sort of eat, love, pray journey, <laughs> ate everything, did everything. Yes. So tell us tell us what happened to you and what inspired, really what inspired this book. Yeah. Well, I would say that I am probably like many other women in that for decades, my menstrual cycle, my period in, you know, in particular was... I felt like it was punishment for being a woman. Like every month it was like, here it is again, you know, and it was the cramps, it was the moodiness, it was the sleeplessness, you know, the sleepless nights, it was the tender breasts, it was the GI distress. And um, I had a couple of things happen in my life at the same time that were very, very stressful. So one of them was that I was going through at the time prior, just before Italy, I was going through a divorce uh, with very young children and you know, I'm great friends with their father now, but I don't, it doesn't matter if you're Gwyneth Paltrow. Like at the time, you know, we were trying to (laughs) consciously uncouple and it just was so heartbreaking for myself, for him, for our children, for our family. Mm -hmm. It's very stressful. And then of course, when it rains, you know, it pours. My clinic also burned down. So I had a fire in the clinic. Everything was torched, save for one thing, which was my degree, uh, which somehow you know, evaded the fire. Yeah, miraculous. It's a sign. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I had to sort of relocate, find a temporary location to continue treating my patients and then also find a new spot and renovate it and make it, you know, the rehab center and all that. So very, very stressed. As you might expect, my periods were even worse during that time. So 
I had already been used to medicating to silence the symptoms. I was already taking things like, you know, ibuprofen or Midol or whatever it was to try. I, and I even had a prescription um, at one point, something called Anaprox, uh, to help with the pain. Mm-hmm. And all of that's sort of happening. My, I'm very chronically stressed, emotionally drained, um, trying to be there for my children as well as trying to, you know, build this new life as a single mother. And so I took my kids, we, you know, we went on a family trip that summer. We went to Italy. And um, I, I think only when I got there, I realized how stressed I was. You know, we were, we spent all our, almost all day at the beach. So I was getting lots of natural sunshine. I was playing in the water with the boys. I was, you know, we were getting fruit and I was taking naps on the beach, all of that. And we would walk, you know, to the restaurant and then from the restaurant and we'd go to the, you know, the place to get my little cappuccino in the morning. And then we'd walk back and we'd get breakfast somewhere. So there was a lot of low level general activity. So walking, lots of natural exposure to the sun, you know, through the day, from the beginning of the day, almost until the evening, we'd even go, you know, evening walks after dinner, we'd go to the little squares where they had little, you know, singing and dancing and stuff. And then towards the end of that trip, I got my period, which under normal circumstances would be just the end of the fun. Like that would be where I'd be holed up in the hotel room mask on, over-medicated, just trying to kind of get through the cramping and the mood changes and stuff. But what was a beautiful surprise to me um, was that it kind of came and went. Like it sort of, I got my period. There wasn't any hemorrhagic like bleeding. My breasts weren't very tender. I remember actually texting uh, my friend at the time who was you know, back home. And I said, God, like, this is what it feels like to, I feel like I'm menstruating like a goddess. Like, this is amazing. Like I've never experienced this before. And just being the, you know, curious, you know, clinician that I am, I wanted to, you know, tease apart what, what was it that made this within one cycle? What was it that made this so enjoyable and so easy with, you know, ease and grace and so I kind of came back to North America. You know, I, I live in Toronto. So came back to Toronto and I was like, okay, what were some of the things? Like it wasn't that I was eating particularly, you know, I wasn't doing keto. It was, you know, I was going out for gelato. I was having pizza with the boys. It was, it was you know, very uh, eat, pray, love, as you said. It was just like yeah. whatever my heart desired. Yeah. Um, but I still was able to have this really beautiful experience. And so that was really the, there was, that was the, really the beginning of my awakening to mm-hmm. the possibility that yes, I can actually enjoy my period. It's not a curse. It's not mm-hmm. something that is punitive or a punishment in any way. And in the right environment, my body will also respond appropriately. So yeah. yes, everything's better in Italy, like the sun, you know, the food, all the coffee, all the things, but my body was the one that did the work, right? So what were some of the, in, like the internal and the external variables that allowed me to have this really great menstruation? Mm-hmm. So there was that. And then I was, I was running a nutrition program at the time mm-hmm. in the clinic. And I, I was also kind of already noticing that there were differences in the results from men and women. And so both of those things together were really the origin story of where this book came from. Well, I have to tell you that reading your book, I was on a trip to Los Angeles and I was there for a week and I read your book on the plane, actually. And when I got there, 
So I I think I've, I've already told you this, been doing keto for the last year and intermittent fasting. And my GI issues are completely through the roof. I mean, it's been good for me. It's good for brain focus and we're going to get into that. But I took your guidance and I just ate whatever I wanted. I walked on the beach for an hour and a half every single day. I remember walking down the sort of boardwalk next to the beach thinking, I feel so happy. And I think happiness is is a huge factor to how we feel. And um, as you can see here, here is the book. <laughs> very happy on the cover. <laughs> Stephanie is very happy and she's also got the best body ever. I mean, I, when I tell you that is an amazing body, she has the best body ever. I aspire to be. And so I do think there is a lot to be said for balance and not punishing our bodies. And I think I, I saw a social media post from you the other day saying, 1,200 calories a day is starvation. Yes. So talk to us a little bit about that because we're all about counting the calories, exercising like crazy. And and by the way, you've inspired me to buy a treadmill to take all my meetings now walking. Yay. So thank you, oh, thank you very amazing. much for that. I oh, believe in walking. I think walking is the best possible exercise that you can get. I agree. It's not hard on your joints. It firms everything up. It's good for your core. But anyway, you are the expert, so I'm not going to preach here. We want to hear no, from I, you. No, you're right. You're right too. I mean, I I think that I agree. I think walking is one of the best things that we can be doing, and we don't do it enough. So a lot of times, you know, we think, oh, we have to exercise. So we have this specialized one hour, you know, 45 minute, you know, spin class, or it's a you know weightlifting session, or what have you, and then we do that, and then we sit for the rest of the day, right? We just get back in front of our computers, and you know we're we're sedentary in this like flexed position. So I agree with you. I think that walking is one of the distinguishing characteristics of being human, right? We're erect and we're bipedal, so we're just we're walking on you know two feet, not all fours, like many of our predecessors, mm-hmm. the mammals that are you know mm-hmm. very close to us, like gorillas and monkeys and, and what mm-hmm. have you. And we need to be able to have that contralateral, like opposite arm, opposite leg. Like that's very, very important for our brain health, which we'll talk about. So I love walking too. Um, mm-hmm. All that to say, I love walking too. I think um, minimal footwear is also, you know, we can, maybe this is a separate podcast, but I also think minimal, uh, the more that you can connect with the ground, you know, oh, the more proprioceptive, like you were talking about walking on the beach. So if you're able Mm -hmm. to walk on a beach barefoot, I mean, that Mm -hmm. is the best thing that you can do. Well, it's not to mention that really strengthens your muscles because it's hard work. Yes, it is. It's really hard work, but I love it. And I'm barefoot all day long. I take the trash out, bare feet, in my grass, in front Mm -hmm. of my house. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am with you. Get, get Get with nature. Absolutely. Get with nature, absolutely. And mm-hmm. I even I even train whenever I do my training. It's barefoot. I don't wear I don't wear trainer like I don't wear running shoes either. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I think walking is really important. I think that getting out in nature is very important. Being exposed to sunlight, and we'll mm-hmm. talk about hopefully we'll get to talk about hormones today. But I mean, there's so many expensive options that we have, but there's also really easy tools that all of us can be implementing as of tomorrow. And that's just get out in the morning and expose yourself, your eyes specifically to that natural morning light when the sun is still very low in the sky. Mm-hmm. That is going to have such a profound impact on your hormones. Like, we, you know, when we talk about hormones, it's going to have effects on your cortisol. It's going to actually help regulate that circadian rhythm of cortisol, which is, you know, part of your sympathetics, part of your stress response. It's going to help with your 
estrogen and your progesterone mm-hmm. and your testosterone, all these things that become very, very important when we're thinking about metabolism and body composition. So I could, I think I'm going off on a tangent. What was your original question? <laughs> Actually, I don't know, but I, I have so many for you. It doesn't really matter. That was good information. Right. And I think, right. I think a lot of us follow those things already. And we're all becoming more and more obsessed with what's in our food, how to eat, my question was actually around GI issues. And the, especially oh, yes. as we get older as women, our stomach issues and our mm-hmm. gut is at the yeah. center of everything. I mean, it affects everything, right? It affects our sex life. It affects our productivity, how we feel about ourselves. We're bloated. I mean, it's disgustly. So I think my question to you was just some quick tips on that, which I think you've been through with the Get With Nature. And I think as especially as you're hitting perimenopause, these things get more acute. What sort of tips do you have on that? And are carbs and sugar the real devil? Because I have a feeling for me, it's about carbs and sugar. Mm-hmm. Give us your thoughts about that. Yeah. And um, actually, I remember you were asking about 1200 calories. So I'll come back to that as well. Mm-hmm. So the the GI question, I think is, is a great one because as you you know so eloquently pointed out, it is related to everything. Mm-hmm. It's related to our mood. It's related mm-hmm. to our, you know, our decision-making. It's related to the way that we metabolize our hormones. Mm-hmm. So in terms of tips, I would say that one of the things that we know is that we want to be as much as possible trying to optimize for as much you know biodiversity if you will in the microbiome as possible. So the microbiome is basically bacteria and there's a whole there's all types of bacteria, good, you know, opportunistic bacteria, passive bacteria and the the point is to really try and keep it in check. And one of the things that I think is most important for gut there's a couple of different things. One of course, is um, making sure that you're eating whole foods whenever possible. I think that fiber plays such an integral role in the integrity of uh, the microbiome. So both soluble and insoluble fiber. So we find insoluble fiber in green leafy vegetables, for example, in, in many vegetables, but they are particularly concentrated in our green leafy vegetables and you know, kind of even narrowing that a little bit even tighter is in that brassica genus, that family of brassica family. So our broccoli, our broccoli sprouts, our cauliflower, mm. the Brussels sprouts, the ones that actually kind of smell a little bit bad. If you keep them in the in the fridge for a little bit, you're like, what's that like rotten egg smell? Yeah. And that's yeah. that's actually a compound called sulforaphane. Uh, so it has sulfur in it. That's that sulfur, that rotten egg smell. Mm. And that's actually incredibly important for liver metabolism and gut health. And it's also really important for horm- like our metabolism of certain hormones like estrogen. Mm. So Insoluble fiber really important. It doesn't get digested in the small intestine like most of like if we have like a sugar as you said or you know an apple that has you know glucose and fructose in it. That all gets metabolized in the small intestine. Insoluble fiber cannot be broken down, uh, so it sort of passes through uh, the gut, and it will, you know, the roughage from the leaves will also help to kind of clean up some of the little bits and pieces that are that are left over. And then the other thing that's really important when we're talking about fiber is this idea of resistant starches. So I talk a lot about this in the book mm-hmm. um, as it relates to microbiome health, but a resistant starch is, you know, we've all heard of uh, probiotics, right? So taking probiotics to help with the diversity of the gut. These are called prebiotics. So a resistant starch, again, 
similar to insoluble fiber, is not broken down by the small intestine, but it serves as a food source for the the microbiome in the large intestine, what we might call colonocytes. So the colonocytes are these, you know, the bugs, if you will, in the large intestine, and they chow down on resistant starches. That gives them their food source. And then as a reward, (laughs) you know, they reward us by feeding them. So they will give us compounds like butyrate. I talk a lot about butyrate in the book around how, and the role that butyrate has in microbiome function. So it helps Mm -hmm. to repair uh, if you have leaky gut, like the GI distress that we were talking about, like the gassiness, the bloating, the distension helps to repair, it helps to bring that down, helps to repair leaky gut. And it also helps with that gut dysbiosis. So that imbalance between some of the species that are in the gut. Mm, quick question. So a number of years ago, after I had my child, I had my gallbladder out and mm. Ever since I've had my gallbladder taken out, I'm really challenged with gut health. Is there any reason that from having my gallbladder out, I've now got stomach issues? Well, the gallbladder is, if you think about your bladder, right? The thing that mm-hmm. you know contains your urine, it's basically like a sack that holds your bile, right? So as the bile is being produced, you hold, you, you hold it in the gallbladder. And then once you eat something fatty, um, there's that detection and the gallbladder will empty out those bile salts to help emulsify those fats and digest them. So in the same way, and it's actually, it's, it's so interesting that you say that because I, I, I was never aware of how many people have had a gallbladder ectomy. Yeah. It is far more common than you yeah. might imagine. I think it's like one in four people have had it. Something really amazing. It's incredible. Yeah. So I so this is actually a really common question that comes up when we're talking about the ketogenic diet. It's like, well, am I able to do that yeah. because I I'm, you know, I don't have a gallbladder. So when That's you what don't, I'm wondering. Yeah. Yeah. So what when you don't have a gallbladder, you still are able to manufacture those bile, like you're still you're still manufacturing those bile salts, but now you don't have a container to hold it. It's just constantly sort of like being dumped into the um, into the d- digestive tract without uh, the detection of fat. So it often will take my, especially my ladies that have had a gallbladder ectomy, it takes them a little longer uh, to get used to a ketogenic diet because they can have some stomach upset. The, like there's a little bit of a little bit of a dance and a habituation that has to happen. But absolutely, I think that if you, even if you don't have a gallbladder, you can still do keto. But we, what we might do instead of just, you know, jumping you into that 70, 20, 10, which is what I talk about in the book, that breakdown, mm-hmm. that 70% mm-hmm. fat, we just slowly graduate you up there. So we, maybe we start at 40% fat. And then as you're, you know, you get used to that, we're not seeing any GI distress. And then maybe we bump it up to 45, yeah. 50, et cetera. Yeah. Well, since LA, when I really was following your advice in that regard, my stomach has been incredible. And, and also sleep and, you know, all these things are so important for having our best bodies ever, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And so I'm, I'm actually going to leave keto behind because I don't think it's suiting me any longer. It did absolutely in the beginning, but, but no longer. So to switch gears for a second, one thing that you're also talking about in the book is how important different types of orgasms are in female health. So let's spice this up a little bit. (laughs) We all love a good orgasm. Yes. Big fan. Big fan. (laughs) Big fan. I I like to say an apple a day keeps the doctor away. I think an orgasm a day keeps the doctor away. I think that's the new, I think that should actually be the new saying. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
So talk to us about the different types of orgasms and why they are so important for female health. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's, in the book, I talk about the difference between an orgasm that you can achieve through mechanical stimulation. So like with toys, with vibrators, Mm -hmm. I think I titled one of the, like to vibrate or not to vibrate. That is the Mm -hmm. question. You know, that's what Mm -hmm. Shakespeare was really (laughs) pondering on. Right. And then, and then we were talking, and then I compared that with more of a manual um, orgasm, which might be achieved with like self-pleasure or with, with a partner. Mm -hmm. And I think that the 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 point I was trying to make here is that all orgasm for women when we're talking about longevity when we're talking about how can we live our best lives how can we stay you know how can we take care of our brain our heart our body one of the things that I think is missing from this conversation is for women specifically orgasms on the daily and this is mm-hmm. I know that you need to have a certain amount of rapport with your you know, primary healthcare provider for that subject to even be breached. So I understand why it may not be in everybody's conversation. And some mm-hmm. doctors are not, you know, they're not comfortable talking about that. But when we think about some of the benefits that orgasms can relay for female physiology, they improve all vitals. So they improve, you know, your heart rate, your heart rate variability, your respiratory rate, your blood pressure, your oxygen saturation. And even for women who have who experience a lot of pain if they're still in their reproductive years and they experience like PMS and cramping and bloating and that irritability leading up to their periods, having orgasms in that fourth week right before you start your period can actually help improve pain tolerance mm-hmm. um, so that, you know, those, that cramping that, you know, part of, there's some cramping that's normal because your uterus is essentially um, mm-hmm. contracting to be able to shed the endometrial lining, but your pain tolerance increases such that you don't feel it as much. So mm-hmm. really big fan of orgasms. There's different, mm-hmm. um, I talk about the different phases of orgasms. So there's excitement, there's plateau, there's the orgasm, and then there's the resolution. So all of those four sort of distinct physiological phases happen irrespective of the type of orgasm that you're having, but it's the plateau part of it. So the part right before you climax, right before you orgasm, that is a little bit longer in more manual stimulation. So whether that's self-pleasure or you're with a partner and there's you know oral stimulation or, or what have you. And this is really what I was trying to bring my reader's attention to is vibrators and toys, you know, they're really like useful. You know, you can like in between Zoom meetings, you know, like little quick, little quick, like bang them out, right? I've done that. I've done that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think we all have, you know, yeah. and, uh, but just I think, not what the Zoom is on. Just not yet. Yeah, Got to make sure you're on mute. The video's That's, off. I think happened yeah. to some people. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's a meme out there somewhere. There is. Um, I've but, seen one. Yeah. But when you're only using a vibrator to climax, then that plateau phase, that part right before you climax or an orgasm is shortened. And that's mm-hmm. where all of the hormonal balancing goodness is. So, um, and there's even, you know, tantric principles that sort of talk to you about coming right up, like, you know, brushing right up against orgasm and then coming back down and then coming yeah. back up. It's more and- intense then. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I would add to what you're saying, and I know you're going to agree with me. There's a couple of things that you've missed off your list, in my opinion, and that is that orgasms are very good for sleep. So having an orgasm before you, if you're trying to go to sleep, especially if you've got pain, pelvic pain, excellent for sleep. And the second thing is one thing I experienced during painful periods is orgasms during your period really help the 
pain and discomfort of a absolutely, period. Absolutely, absolutely. It's just a, a shame in the, the, the world that we live in. I do a lot of work internationally, how periods and bleeding that time of the month are considered in other cultures. You're often considered dirty and men yeah. are not going to go anywhere near you. Mm-hmm. So yay for toys and yay for self-pleasure. And yay for allowing yourself to enjoy it. I mean, that's the other thing too. There's, we're either frigid, you know, or if we enjoy it, then there's like a, a whole list of names that, Slut you know, shaming yeah, all yeah. the words all. And it's like, you know, I think that we can all agree that this feels really awesome. It's a part, yep. it's a health practice. You said like nature's ambient, right? Beautiful way to help yep. you sleep in the evening. Mm-hmm. And I think that we just have to get over that. Like I'm a, I, I think that this is like to take back your pleasure and to take back the ownership of your pleasure, I think is one of the most powerful things that you can do as a woman. I, because I agree. And I make this argument in the book. There's no other reproductive function of the clitoris. It's, no. it's all pleasure and you are designed for pleasure. So you might mm-hmm. as well enjoy the gift that you've been given. Mm-hmm. Oh, amen, sister. Okay. So a couple of things I would like to point out that most men masturbate every single day, mm-hmm. whether they are in a partnership or a relationship. So why don't we give ourselves the permission to do that as well? And on the subject of men, in your book, you talk about that we're not little men, that mm-hmm. we shouldn't be treated as men. So talk to us more about what you mean by that and how that's going to lead us to better female health and a better body. It's a great question. Yeah. So one of the huge through lines in the book is this idea that women are not little men. And that really stems from the history of women's medicine, truthfully. It's just, we've always been sort of looked at as smaller archetypes of men with just like pesky Mm -hmm. hormones. And when we look at literature, historically, we've been often excluded from really high quality studies because the menstrual cycle has been considered a confounding variable because essentially a woman is different every single day of the month. Her hormonal profile constantly changes. And when we look at you know, a randomized controlled trial, for example, what they're trying to do is they're trying to press down any type of variance that can happen and they just want to be able to manipulate one thing, right? Mm-hmm. So we've often, and I think it was only in 2014 that the NIH mandated that women have to be included in most studies, which is like, that was just like six maybe seven years ago uh, at Amazing. this point. Yeah. Amazing. So yeah, it's it's this it's this idea that all the protocols that we see, now it's getting better, right? I, I, you know, we are mm-hmm. starting to see more literature coming out around women, female specific outcomes. But for the most part, the protocols and the standard of care that we see is derived from research that has been primarily done on men. And, you know, you mentioned the ketogenic diet. This is a really good example of where most of the research that exists is primarily on males or male rodents. So uh, when we look at trying to apply this to a female body, oftentimes women will say, God, like I don't understand. Like my husband's losing 20 pounds and 30 pounds and his testosterone is restored and his sperm is now like, you know, through the roof. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, it's, he's like (laughs) his growth hormone. He feels great. He's lost weight. And I'm here miserable. You know, all I can think about is carbohydrates. Like all I can think about is pizza. So we have to really consider some of the unique characteristics of a woman. And one of those things is her, her menstrual cycle Mm -hmm. and then how that changes over the arc of a woman's life, because we have, Mm 
you know, a woman, you know, before she starts menstruating, the 40 years or so that she's in her reproductive years, the perimenopausal years, which are another chain, like ever-changing hormonal environment. And then of course, menopause. And then if you're, you know, if you've made a choice to have children, of course, then you have the hormonal hurricane that is pregnancy, delivery, breastfeeding, and then all the things that come from the recovery of that. So yeah, we're not little men. And I think it's high time that we stop pretending that we are. I could not agree more. I mean, we talk about erectile dysfunction and Viagra till the cows come home. We're allowed to advertise it. The government give grants so men in the army can get Viagra. Where is our Viagra? From my understanding, one has been developed and it is out there, but was an absolute nightmare to get approval on. And we're just not considered. Women's healthcare is not an equal playing field to men's healthcare. I agree. And the fact that you that we're testing things out just on men is it's depressing. Mm-hmm. We will change that, Stephanie. We're going to change that. That is going to change. So let's talk. You had We had touched on this a little bit before. Fats and carbs are not the devil. Is that what you're saying? That's what I kind of got from the book. Yeah. And why is that? All macronutrients are welcome. All macronutrients can sit at this table. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. how we use them. And so mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of a carbohydrate appropriate diet for women. And that's going to mm-hmm. change based on her age, based on her activity level, you know, based on her physical fitness, her body composition, all these different things. But I, I think that one of the lies that we've been told is that fat is going to give us a heart attack. It's going to cause atherogen, like placking in the arteries. And it's, it's, it's super bad for us. And, you know, there is a small subset of the population that has a problem metabolizing specifically saturated fat, or maybe they have a history of familial, it's called um, FH or familial uh, hypercholesterolemia, where these individuals don't really do well on a ketogenic diet. But for the 80% or so, or maybe 85% of the population that do not have these particular variants, um, the ketogenic diet can be a very useful tool, a temporary metabolic intervention to help develop metabolic flexibility, which is to say that you can easily switch from being a sh- someone who burns sugar to someone who burns fat. Mm-hmm. And I think once you've you've had sort of that window, that meta, you know, that therapeutic intervention of a ketogenic diet, then what I talk about and propose in the book is altering your macronutrients based on where you are. If you are you know, in your menstrual, in your reproductive years based on your menstrual cycle. And then Mm -hmm. I put some considerations in there as well for if you are perimenopausal or if you're menopausal as well. Because I Mm. think not altering the way, if we were supposed to, if you think that eating the same way every single day of the month, like men do, because they don't have a menstrual cycle, I think that's a huge mistake. Mm. Okay, that leads on to the next two topics that we're going to close with. We're going to talk about intermittent fasting and we're going to talk about hormones being our superpower. Mm. And let's start with hormones. Okay, why are they our superpower and how do hormones change everything? Oh, good question. So I think when we think about the ever-changing hormonal milieu that we all experience every day of the month if you are a menstruating woman... 
understanding that pattern, understanding that ebb and flow will allow you to structure your life that honors your physiology. So when you are, and I talk about this in the book, for example, when you're on your bleed week, when you're on your period, this is a really great time for sinking inwards into your body, for thinking about the problems that you need to solve this cycle. It's a journey inward, if you will. Mm-hmm. In the second week, when you're you know done your period, we see things like estrogen and testosterone rising. Often women will report that they are you know much more extroverted, much more chatty, much more social. So this is again sacred energy that's being given to you to help you solve the problems that you discovered last week when you were maybe a bit more introverted, maybe in your body a little bit. So this energy is now coming to you as a gift for you to be able to figure out you know, what are some of the things that I need to, do I need to spend more time with, you know, friends? Do I need more socialization? Do I need to spend more quality time with my children, my partner, my, you know, whatever. And then as we move into the luteal phase, the second half of the cycle, again, the hormonal composition continues to change. And this is, uh, we see sort of a, a sustained uh, release of estrogen, which I mean, there's estrogen receptors all over the body, but particularly for women, when our brains are bathing in estrogen, we are much more articulate. So this is a great Mm -hmm. time to have a podcast, for example, to give a presentation, to ask for a raise, because we are going to be much more succinct in putting our thoughts together and being able to communicate that in an effective way. Mm. So I am hearing that you are a huge fan of estrogen. I think estrogen is wonderful. Yes. I mean, I'm a huge fan of all hormones. I, I don't I don't bias. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Amazing. Because I've never taken estrogen. I probably should start thinking about that. But okay, let's talk about intermittent fasting. Now, I've been doing this. I think you and I talked about this before, but I've been doing intermittent fasting now for a year and a half. And again, I am not sure. This, this whole notion of how all bodies are different and that we have to listen to our bodies and... So with my intermittent fasting, I am the person who stops eating at eight and doesn't eat again until 12 midday or one o'clock. And by that time, I start to shake. You want to eat someone's arm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, it's not really that. It's not like I'm dying to eat, but I feel so ill and I'm so shaky that I'm just like, just give me anything to eat, anything, because I feel so ghastly. Yeah. What's happening? What's going on? You're fasting for too long. I mean, that's the that's the honest truth. I think that, again, so many of us look at this 16-8 model, like this eight-hour mm-hmm. eating window, 16-hour fast, very, very common, probably too aggressive for women every single day. I think mm-hmm. that you can engage in a 16-8 here and there, but mm-hmm. for the most part, and this is, again, from experience and from looking at the literature, when I started fasting, I was doing, I was like, I'm going to do a 24-hour fast like every other day, and then I'll do a no. 16 in between. And I was dead. Like my menstrual yeah. cycle was like, a, there was one, actually, I was trying to do a five-day fast because I remember seeing, I can't remember which guy it was. It might've been Mark Sisson. It was some 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 expert. He was doing a five-day fast. I'm like, I'll do a five. I'm strong. I'll do a five-day fast. And then I lo- my period next month didn't show up. I was amenorrheic the next month and I had was like- bad. It was bad, it's bad, bad. bad news bears. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't think that women should be fasting the same way every single day of the month. In the same way, I don't think we should be eating the same way every single day of the month. Especially when you think about the the effort that your body is going, whether you want a, a child or not, your body is 
essentially creating a new organ. Like you have this endometrial lining that's thickening, like waiting for this fertilized egg. There's a lot of energy that goes in there. And if you're not A, increasing your calories and B, giving yourself a break in that fasting, on the fasting during that week, I mean, yeah, you're just just gonna hate fasting and you're not gonna practice it Mm long-term. So I like gentle fasting, like 12, Mm -hmm. 12, you know, like that's a seven to seven eating window, you know, eight to eight eating window. That's really, most people can do that most of the time. And then I detail in the book, like different times where you can really push it, you know, like Mm -hmm. maybe once you're done your period, you can maybe have a bit more of an aggressive fast if you choose, like one day, maybe two days. And then for the rest, it's it's kind of like, you know, it's okay to put your foot on the brake. Like we're not men. We're not supposed to be hunting and right. going for days without food so we can bring home the, you know, the boar to to roast mm-hmm. for the family. Mm-hmm. We don't, we're not supposed to do that. So out with the cavemen and within uh, you. Yes. Out with the cave women. Yeah. Okay. And stop pretending so like you're a man, this. right? You're yeah. like, that's that's us trying to be little men. That's us yeah. saying, oh, look at all these male experts. They're doing no. it. That It must be good for me without well, consideration. Well, I love being a woman. I yes. absolutely love being a woman. <laughs> I love everything there is to be a woman. So I'm certainly not going to be a caveman anytime soon. So what you're saying is you're a fan of 12-12. 12 And just gentle. Yes. Gentle fasting. Gentle what feels fasting. good. Like if you, for example, you said, I go to bed, I don't eat at eight. You know, and then the no, next- I eat at eight. I probably eat the last thing I will eat or drink is at eight thirty, and then I don't eat again until midday. So maybe in the next week you can like experiment with eating at ten o'clock or nine o'clock mm-hmm. and see how you feel, and you probably won't be so shaky yeah, and so for sure. uh, frenetic around that. And I think that's yeah. a much gentler. You still get the same benefits that you might with a sixteen eight. It's just a little bit. It's a little bit less. Mm-hmm. And what are those benefits, Stephanie, to fasting? What does that do to your body? So many things. So a couple of things right off the bat, it induces something called autophagy, which is basically cellular spring cleaning. So like if cells aren't working as robustly or as well as they should, they get scheduled for deletion and there's the birth of new cells. Um, if you have you know, mitochondria that are kind of slow, again, they're just kind of scheduled to be deleted. So mm-hmm. autophagy is a really great way to continue with cellular renewal. This is how we renew and become you know, more youthful, if you will, from the cells up. Other things like uh, increasing growth hormone, which is really important for men and women. Um, but growth hormone, of course, is involved in muscle mass. It's involved in bone density and bone health. It's involved in keeping our brains thick and juicy, really important in in metabolism in general uh, for our body to be able to take energy and bring it into the cell and use it appropriately. It helps for women who have, I mean, we can kind of get into some of the different hormonal uh, permutations, but for women who have too much testosterone or PCOS, um, which is a polycystic ovarian syndrome, usually this is rooted in hyperinsulinemia, too much insulin as a result of potentially having too much carbohydrates, as you were mentioning earlier. So fasting helps to improve their insulin sensitivity, not just that population, everybody, but specifically if you were someone with PCOS, this is a fat, like a regular fasting is, is really important for you. Mm-hmm. But for the general population, improves our insulin sensitivity, uh, reduces inflammation, which of course mm-hmm. is another reason why we prematurely age, uh, reduces oxidative stress. It, if you are able to start using ketone bodies, which are the alternate fuel to glucose, then of course your brain is able to to do that and you're reducing that oxidative stress that can happen from um, mm. using glucose to produce energy. 
Well, this is absolutely most tragic, Dr. Stephanie, but we have come to the end of our time. Gosh, that was quick. I know because there's just so much to talk about. I mean, I feel like we're soul sisters in this regard where we're on the same mission for female health. So many more questions. But I would like to thank you so much. I also wish to tell our listeners that everything that we've talked about today is in the Betty book which is Dr. Stephanie's amazing book about being, it's the goddess guide to eating a balanced diet, but also hormonal and transformative sex. We like transformative sex. (laughs) Big fan. (laughs) Um, And overall happiness. I can absolutely assure you after reading the book, it just made me happy to read this book. I definitely want a Betty body. So I'm taking all your tips. Uh, You can get more information about the book at thebodyagency.com. So please log on and you can find the book there. And uh, Stephanie, I need you back on the podcast as soon as possible. So happy to do it. We should do part two. A part two and also world domination for female bodies. Yes, please. Okay. High five. High five. All right. Well, (laughs) um, you have a wonderful day and I will talk to you soon. Bye for now. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body, and Soul. Remember, you can find all of my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. Be sure to sign up for our email list at thebodyagency.com for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotion code to get a 10% discount, podcast10. Thanks for listening.